0: Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some Bibles in the pews, um, some blue paperback Bibles you should be able to find there. And if you don't own a Bible, then we would encourage you to take one of those Bibles free as our gift to you and use that um, to your benefit uh, and learn who this Savior is that we worship, who Jesus is that we talk about and, and make such a big deal about every Sunday. If you are unfamiliar with, who he is, it is all found right there in that book. So I would encourage you to take that, utilize that. We will also have the text on the screen as well, so you can follow along that way if you wish. If you would, stand with me, church family, for the reading of God's word. Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Bow your heads and pray with me as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that... In your word, we see everything that we need to understand what it means to follow you, what it means to know you. We need not look for any other avenue of knowing who Jesus is, of knowing what your will for our lives is, Lord. It is found sufficiently in your word. And so, Lord, we come now to this sufficient text, and Lord, we ask that as we read your word, as we read specifically here in Acts chapter 4, you would help us to see truly and rightly what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a part of the church that you have called us into, this kingdom of light that you have called us into out of darkness. And Lord, we ask that we might be humble, that we might approach your word, not with our own thoughts or expectations of what we might receive or what we might understand, but Lord, that we would be willing to be corrected, instructed, challenged, uh, and Lord, that in all things we might humbly submit to your word as it is presented here to us in the book of Acts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My title for this morning is The Communion of Saints. And for some of you, this might be a a phrase that you're unfamiliar with, but for some of you, you might recognize this phrase. It's a phrase found in one of the most famous and one of the oldest creeds of the Christian church. It's found in the Apostles' Creed in one of the later portions of the creed, the portion about the Holy Spirit and the church. uh, We read a belief that the church has held for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years the belief that we as believers in Jesus Christ, those, as those who have trusted in him by faith, find a common union, a fellowship, a communion together with all other saints. With all other saints in history past and with all other saints that are to come and with all saints present. There is found in this understanding a unity or a communion of saints The communion of saints has been been, uh, understood in various ways. Some have, when they hear the word communion or communion of saints, think exclusively of of maybe holy communion or what we call the Lord's Supper and, and limit their idea of communion or even the communion of saints to that. But this understanding of the communion of saints, this unity, this bond, this fellowship that we share with all believers around us and all believers that have come before us and will come after us, is far more than something that just happens once a week on a Sunday morning. It's far more than something that just happens when we take certain elements in our worship and apply them. But it is a universal truth of the Christian church. And it's a universal church, universal truth that has great impact on how we live as believers and how we conduct ourselves with Fellow Believers around us with fellow saints, because yes, indeed the New Testament understands that all believers are saints. This is good news for those of you who maybe were striving or hoping for sainthood. Uh, it is not as hard as what the Roman Catholic Church makes it out to be. Trust in Jesus Christ by faith, and you will be a saint. That's what the New Testament tells us. So then the communion of saints says something that is true of all believers. And the communion that we share is rooted in our common union with Christ. The communion of saints, the fellowship of believers, is something that we see even as we gather here today. But what we sometimes miss or don't see is what it is that this communion is built on, is founded upon. It is not founded upon Simply the fact that we all happen to be in the same place at the same time. It is not founded upon anything but our union with Jesus Christ. So that all those who are united to Christ, whom he has called out of this world and made a people of his own, he has united with himself and in turn united together with one another. So that when we are called by God through Jesus Christ into fellowship with him, into union with Christ we are necessarily called into communion with one another, into unity with one another. The Bible knows of no Christian, no group of Christians that is, that is broken off or separated from the communion of saints. That is to be pulled off or separated from the church. In the New Testament, what we see exclusively is those who are united to Christ are united with one another, the communion of saints. This morning as we study the book of Acts, we're going to look a little bit deeper into this communion and see some of the characteristics that are to mark God's church, that are to be found in this communion of saints that was recognized all the way back in the Apostles' Creed and that is still true today of the church. And my hope today is that as we look at the early church and we we see what were some of the characteristics of their union, their fellowship with one another, that we might see and learn what it looks like for Christians today in the year 2023 to be united together in fellowship with one another and communion with one another. And so some of the characteristics that we're going to look at are going to be found here in this text in 32 through 37. And the first characteristic that we see found in verse 32 is that point number one, the church is to be of one mind. The church is to be of one mind. Verse 32 says, now the full number, that is all of them, all of the believers, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a great statement that the author Luke makes here that they were of one heart and one soul, that they were of one accord, that they were of one mind. It almost sounds like an obvious truth, but it is necessary for us to recognize that unity, fellowship, community with one another in a biblical form, biblical fashion, necessitates that we be of one mind, of one heart and soul, that we be on the same page. There's a, a, a an action flick that came out back I don't know, several years ago now, called Pacific Rim. And the, the idea behind this, this movie, Pacific Rim, was there were these aliens that were, this is going to sound so dumb, just bear with me, there were these aliens that were coming out of holes in the ocean, uh, and there were these great big giant beasts, uh, and mankind had to come up with a way to counteract this threat as a way to, uh, to defend the earth against these uh, ocean aliens. And the plan they came up with was to create these giant Uh, these giant mechs, these giant robots, essentially, that were to be operated by human beings inside the head of these robots. And they tried it at first with just one human being, but as the story goes, uh, it was too much strain on one human mind. It was too much for one person to bear to be able to control this giant machine as they hooked him up to the machine and they controlled it with their mind and their movements and their actions and kind of became one with the machine in a sense. And so what they ended up figuring out was that they needed two people, two human beings, and specifically two people that could be uh, in one another's minds, that were, in a sense, compatible, because what was necessary, I'm going way too far on this analogy, I can already tell, but what was necessary was that they form a sort of link, a sort of bond with one another in order to work and, and act in unity with one another to operate this giant machine. That if one of them had, was of a different mindset, had a different accord, had his, his own way of doing things and how he wanted to operate this machine compared to how this other person wanted to operate it, it wasn't going to work. They were going to fail and they were likely going to hurt one another in the process. The church requires that we, in a somewhat similar fashion, be of one mind and of one accord. The church is to be made up of people who all see and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church and what it is that unifies us, and see it on the same page. That they be of one heart, of one soul, that they be of one mind with one another. Because the moment that we gather together a group of people who all have their own minds, their own understandings, and have no unity in the way of thinking and understanding, they are not united in heart or soul or mind. The church is doomed to collapse, and probably not in very much time. What is required if the church is going to be sustained, if the church is going to last, is that it be all together of one heart and one soul. This means that all who were gathered together here in Acts were in agreement and understood what mattered. The church of Jesus Christ exhibits a kind of unity that's built on something more than just common interests or activities or common demographics, there are all kinds of social clubs and groups that have a sense of community, unity, even a kind of communion with each other, but it's always based on other things. We have a, uh, uh, you can be a part of a golf club where you have a great time and a great amount of, of fellowship and sort of unity, so long as everything that you are talking about doing is around golf, Right? Because golf in a golf club is what unifies you, or name any other club that there might be. It is always some other thing, some other interest, some other demographic, some other activity that brings unity in other scopes, other areas of life. And that's perfectly fine and okay, but one thing that you'll note is that none of those groups is going to last forever. It's going to last so long as there are people interested in that thing. My wife and I, when we were first dating, we kind of got into uh, the ballroom dancing scene here in Evansville. Uh, And you might not know that there's a ballroom dancing scene here in Evansville, but there is. In fact, there's clubs that meet. And what we found to be true is that we were usually the only couple in these ballroom dancing meetings that happened on like a monthly basis that were under the age of like 45. And there weren't many people around 45, right? We had people approaching us at some of these clubs saying, hey, would you, we'll give you free passes to come into our club. You can come in. There's going to be a live band and food. We just want young people there. They were so desperate for new people to come and, and take part in this interest because what they identified was that this thing that they loved, this club that they had, this group that they had was dying out because it was built on just a, an interest in ballroom dancing. And when the interest in ballroom dancing fizzles out, ballroom dancing clubs fizzle out. The thing is, the church of Jesus Christ, the communion of saints that we have, is built on something far greater than that. As I look around the room, and I look at various people in the room who are members here at Redeemer Fellowship Church with me, it's kind of amazing that we would be a part of any group or club together. I look at somebody like Greg, and myself and Greg have very little in common very little we're very different in age we're very different in height we're very different in our interests we have really no reason that the two of us would have the kind of relationship and bond and commitment to one another that we have we have it why because both of us find our commonality our communion in our union with christ the same is true with someone like christina Myself and Christina have probably even less in common than me and Greg. But the one thing that's true of Christina and that's true of me that unites us together is that we are brother and sister in Christ. That in Christ we have a fellowship with one another because it's rooted in our fellowship and our union with Christ. And this is a part of the beauty of the church. That's why the church doesn't have to be unified in our age or in our demographic or in our interests. You can have people from all walks of life. You can have people that love basketball and people that love D&D in the same church. Because none of those things constitutes the basis of our relationship, the basis of our union with one another. It is rooted in, it is found in Jesus Christ and the gospel alone. This also gives us great help in understanding how unity can be maintained and can be fostered in the church. It can be maintained and fostered by keeping our focus on what matters. Or as some have said, keeping the main thing, the main thing. If we want to maintain our unity in the gospel, our unity as a church, the communion that we share with one another, it's not going to be maintained by playing basketball more together. That's a great thing, but that's not going to maintain our unity. It's not going to be by playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons more together together. It's not going to be by watching football together. It's not going to be by sewing together. You name the thing, none of it is going to to stir up or foster the communion of saints, the fellowship that we are to have in the church, except for our commitment to and our focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is greater and more important and more foundational to our unity than all those things. And that includes even programs in the church. Churches split and break up all the time over things other than the gospel. And that's so tragic, isn't it? It is so tragic that a church would let other things become of such importance to them in their hearts and in their lives that they no longer are of one heart and soul. Because one person or one group thinks that a certain Ministry program ought to be done a certain way, while the other thinks that should should, done, should be done a different way. But if we are to maintain unity, fellowship, communion with one another, then we need to regularly and often and with a fervor be committing ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ and His Word. So long as we remain remain committed to Jesus Christ, committed to the gospel, committed to the very pages of scripture that we have before us today, so long as we keep that as our emphasis and as our focus and what binds us, our union with Christ, then our communion, our community, our unity, our fellowship will be fostered with one another. The more conversations we have about the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, the more we will be unified. That's why the songs that we sing, the worship songs about what God has done for us, that before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. Jesus Christ alone, the one who lives and pleads for me. That is true of every person in here that knows Jesus, regardless of all the things that separate us, that differentiate between us. This is always true of all of us. It's why we can all raise our hands and sing to the same glorious hymns, the same biblical truths. And in that time, we strengthen, and we grow our fellowship with one another. I think what we ought to do, what we, what we should do if we want to continually foster and grow that communion with one another is outside of the songs and Sunday mornings, make those a part of our regular conversations. It doesn't mean you can't talk about athletics or about politics or about whatever the other thing might be. But it means if that's all you talk about, well I can tell you there's going to be a lot more disunity so than unity, right? But the more we center ourselves our lives even the way we relate to one another around the person and work of Jesus Christ, the more we foster our union and emphasize our union with him, the more our union with one another will grow. Let this let us be of one mind and that we are committed and resolved and in agreement about what matters. And what matters, as we'll see in point number two, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point number two, the church is to be established in and established by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A popular view of the church, especially by those outside the church, is that the church is, or at least should be, like this passage, verse 32 through 37, except without verse 33. Look at what verse 33 says. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You see, even the world around us reads this passage and reads uh, of the apostles in the early church having everything in common and selling their possessions and giving to one another as everyone had need, so that there was not a needy person among them. And even the world looks at that and goes, hey, that's great. Yes and amen. That's what the church ought to be about. That's what the church is. To the point that even as as I've had conversations, when we first moved into this building and and we would go around, we'd do door-to-door evangelism. We would talk to people here in the neighborhood. We heard all the time people saying, man, I'm so thankful that there's a church there and and that the community will have a, a, a church there and people will be served and this and that. But then when you say, yeah, that's great let me talk to you about why we exist and you begin to talk about the gospel very quickly all of those hopes all of those compliments all of those desires fade away you see the world wants the church to be radically committed to giving up everything that we have for the sake of others but what the world doesn't want to hear is of jesus christ The world doesn't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear about their sin, their guilt before a holy God. They don't want to hear about Jesus Christ and how salvation is found exclusively in him. The world wants us to to live as a church, taking this passage and adopting it, but leaving out verse 33. But as we know, we can't do that. In actuality, commitment to one another and the proclamation of the gospel are two sides of the same coin that is The church. No church is a true church so long as either one of these is missing. You see, a church that is ardently committed to proclaiming the gospel, yet is completely disunified with one another, lacks concern for their brothers and sisters in Christ, lacks care and a desire to to nurture and be with and commune with one another, is a church that is destined to fail. Fail. It's a church that's destined to fail because it's a church that has neglected not only the very commands of Christ, but even the very life of Christ. But in the same turn, in the same token, a church that is radically committed to living in communion with one another, to giving up all that we have for the sake of one another, yet where the gospel is absent, is a church that's built on nothing. It's built only on human personalities and human desires and and the hope that we will all continually be free will people who like to be generous. And that is frankly not human nature. It's not something that can be banked upon or hope placed in. If either one of these things is lacking, then the church will not stand. A phrase essential to this entire passage, though, is the phrase found at the end of verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. You see, grace is essential to all of this happening. Grace is essential to all that we do as believers. It's essential to our being called to Jesus Christ. It's essential to our being saved and justified through him. It's essential to our living as Christ would have us live in the world. What we see is that actually all throughout the New Testament, grace comes up a lot. And in all different contexts and in connection with various doctrines and situations grace is like the oil in the engine you know what's amazing i have a motorcycle at home that i've been doing a lot of work to over the past couple years and what's amazing if you take any one part of that engine i mean any part of it and you take it apart you know what you're going to find you're going to find oil all over the inside of it and it's probably going to run everywhere right Which is funny because there's only one place that oil goes into the engine. You don't have to open up every part of the engine and put different lubricants all over the engine. The same oil oils the whole engine. It's spread throughout and the whole engine needs the same engine oil in order to operate efficiently and effectively. In the same way, all of the life of believers, all of the life of the church needs and cannot function without the grace of God. The grace of God is the oil that oils all that we do and allows it to work, allows it to function. Nothing that we do as a church would have any effect, would be of any value, would go an inch apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. We see this in the ministry of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 verse 8. Luke says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was doing these great wonders and signs in his ministry as he was full of grace and power. We see the necessity of grace and the forgiveness of sin, uh, certainly all throughout the New Testament, but let's look in Acts chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We see the essential nature of grace to the forgiveness of our sins and our salvation. But even beyond that, in relation to our sanctification, the book of Titus, we read this in chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So what do we see then here? That grace is essential even to our sanctification, in our growing in godliness, in our putting off of worldly passions and living self-controlled upright godly lives in the present age grace is essential to all that we do as believers and it is essential to the work that God has called us to do that as we proclaim the word of God as we proclaim the gospel with boldness it necessitates grace as we commune with one another as we seek to live our lives in this way that we forsake all that we have for the sake of those around us in the church it requires and it necessitates God's grace, apart from his grace, we can do none of it. It is only by God's grace that the church has such power and such community. And that grace is available exclusively in the resurrected Christ. Therefore, the church must never forsake Christ, but always and continually proclaim his name and the gospel. We cannot have this passage. We cannot have this reality of what the church is apart from verse 33, the gospel is essential to establishing the church. Point number three, the church is to be committed to each other and that at all costs. The church is to be committed to each other at all costs. Many people read this passage, especially verse 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There are plenty of people who have taken passages like this or the similar passage in Acts chapter two and have concluded that the Bible is in favor of some form of socialism, that the idea of private property, at least within the church, ought to be defunct, done away with, but all people ought to take all that we have and, and pull it together. No longer do we own anything ourselves, but now we have we live in a sort of commune, a communal situation where all the resources are pooled and we are are robbed of our personal property. But that is a bad understanding of this text. So I want to say at the outset, what this text is not is a proof text of any form of socialism. And the key, we could get into it further, but it's sufficient to say that the key to the understanding of this is primarily the fact that this sort of giving, this giving up of our possessions of their of their lands and of even sometimes their houses was entirely voluntary this was not under any kind of compulsion it was not forced and beyond that what you see throughout the new testament as well is is the idea of personal property regularly coming up and not at all condemned but those who have personal property are called to use it to the glory of god but what we can learn from this text while it it is not true that this supports some kind of Christian socialism, what is true is that this text pictures for us that the early church had a radical commitment to Christ that necessitated and resulted in a radical commitment to his people. And this is true. It is true that we ought to be radically committed to the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of the church, because this is what God has called us to more than that, this kind of radical commitment affects every part of our lives, including our finances. Now, this is where the conversation gets really uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we don't like to talk about our finances. It makes us really uncomfortable to be confronted with, to, to talk about, to discuss what we consider to be ours, right? Right? The area of our finances and our money is an area where most of us get a little bit touchy. And indeed, pitfalls abound when it comes to conversations and preaching and teaching on money. We can all think of ways in which it has been distorted, abused, people have been taken advantage of. Or the idea of radical giving and and using our finances to the glory of God has been completely removed from the equation. What I argue here is that the picture that we, that we see here in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament is that we are called to give all that we have, to commit all that we are to the Lord, and this includes our finances. It's like we, we have committed to the Lord all that we have, our entire house, our entire lives. It's all yours. Like, like we have given him our house, the house that is our life and yet we sometimes in practice say it's all yours but look there's this one room in the upstairs corner this is this is kind of ours okay don't go in there don't worry about that and i'd rather just not talk about it but frankly we're not given that option the problem is that first of all conversion becoming a christian it is an all-encompassing event And we wouldn't accept this kind of attitude in any other area of our life, would we? To say, yes, all that I am, all that I have, it belongs to you, Jesus. Except for my love life, you know, I kind of have my own thing going on there, my own ideas, and I'd rather keep those protected, right? Some people do that, but all of those who are faithful to the word of God say, no, you, you can't do that. We can't do that with any area of our life, and we can't do that with our finances, Another major problem with this kind of thinking, not wanting to bring our money into the conversation, is the fact that the Bible brings finances into the conversation. There's no way to read this passage and understand it in any way apart from the finances of the early church members. They were literally liquidating their assets and committing the proceeds to the congregation. Selling their land, selling their houses, selling of what they had in order to serve the needs of the group, committing it to the church. The things being liquidated, being sold here, represent more than what we might first realize. You see, in this time, they didn't have the same investment options that we have today. They didn't have the stock market or or even anything like modern banking. In this day and age, for these people, these This land, these possessions were the equivalent of their savings account. And when we think about our savings account, we think about our investments, why is it that we make those investments? Why do we put money in savings? Why do we invest money into the stock market? It's for security, right? It's to set ourselves up for later. It's to, to give ourselves this kind of security and comfort for the future. So when we read that they are selling what they have, that they are selling of their land that they have, that they are taking this piece of security that is theirs, that they have uh, have for a hope, for confidence in the future, that they might have the money they need, that their children might have what they need, that they might be sustained. They're taking those things, liquidating them, selling them, and giving the proceeds to the church. They're giving in such a way that is radical, in such a way that even their security here on earth, in these earthly forms of money and wealth, they're willing to risk even that for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of the communion of saints. For these believers, they were even willing to give up some of their financial security for the sake of the fellowship. They did this because they trusted in the promises of the Lord. They knew that they would not be forsaken. They knew that they would not be forgotten. They knew that the Lord cared more about them than they even cared for themselves. The psalmist David writes in verse 37, 25, something that likely would have been of great hope to these believers. The psalmist David says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. The believers believed in the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the goodness of God towards his people so that they were willing even to risk their investments, risk a portion of their future for the sake of his church. This certainly helps to inform our giving. When we ask the question, are we truly trusting in Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in him to sustain us, to care for us? Or are we withholding what we think is ours Because we think we have to in order to be cared for. And this is certainly a helpful way in in thinking about giving. But there's even more to it than that that motivates these believers to give. I would argue that this kind of sacrificial giving, even at the expense of their financial security, was also an investment. But that it was an investment with eternal dividends. And let me tell you what I mean. When we invest in, whether it be the stock market, whether it be even a savings account, we put our money in there, we do it as a sense of security, and we also think this is a form of an investment, that I'm investing money here and I'm going to reap, some sort of benefit is going to be reaped later by this investment. And what some might think and some might understand giving to the church and this kind of radical generosity to be is that you are taking your money out of an investment and putting it here And then that's the end of it. No benefit comes of it. It's gone. It's out of your mind, out of your eyes. And therefore, it's as though it never existed. You might as well have just thrown it into a hole. But what I would argue is that the early church and how I think we ought to view giving and committing ourselves even to radical giving to the church is that they are banking on something greater that they believe that this is an investment in something even beyond their life here on earth but something far greater and far more important and something that has eternal value they are investing in the kingdom of god so that even when when we pass away what we have committed to invest into the kingdom of god it will continue to serve dividends we might not see them but we know that it does Even if Redeemer Fellowship Church ceases to exist, the money that we have collected, that we have given, that we have dedicated to the ministry, to the work of the kingdom of God, it is going to serve eternal dividends. We have to hold this understanding. We have to believe this if we are ever going to believe that this kind of radical giving makes sense. I want to give, as I've clearly said a, a lot here about Giving and about our finances. I want to give us just some practical insights on giving that I hope will be helpful. Some of these come from, from Tim Keller, kind of the main idea. Tim Keller puts forward the idea of what true and right Christian giving ought to be. And he says that ideally, as Christians, our giving ought to be a kind of giving that is active and intentional. These are the words that he uses that it ought to be active and intentional. And he uses these words, active and intentional, as an opposite to passive and spontaneous. And here's what I mean by that. When you look at the lives of the early church, when you look at these believers and how they were giving, these believers were not sitting around waiting for someone to come up to them and beg for money. And then, well, I guess since I'm on the spot and you're here and you're kind of making me feel guilty, I'll give, right? That's how giving sometimes goes, right? Right? You go to uh, conferences, you go to certain events or or evangelistic speakers, and oftentimes what you'll feel, what you'll see is a sense of guilt-ridden, spontaneous giving. Now, I'm not saying that if you've given money spontaneously that you are in sin. But what I am saying, as Tim Keller says, that a better way to give is active and intentional. That is, we ought to purpose our heart, purpose our mind to commitment to the church In all that we say and all that we do. In the same way we ought to discipline ourselves and commit ourselves to actively and intentionally setting aside time to read God's word. Setting aside time to pray to the Lord who who hears all our prayers. Setting aside time to be in fellowship with one another. All of these things, we understand this word, we are to be intentional in these things. Apply the same principle to our giving to the giving of tithes and offerings. We are to be intentional and active in it. We are to plan accordingly. Jamie Dunlop, he's an executive pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He wrote a really helpful book uh, about church budgets. And he, he says in his book, as he is talking about how we are to give as believers, he looks at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse two, where Paul says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And Jamie Dunlop looks at this passage and and looks at other passages regarding Scripture, but he he specifically looks here and he points out from this passage that our giving should have three qualities. That first of all, our giving is to be regular. He commands the church, this is Paul speaking to the early church, he says, on the first day of every week. On the first day of every week, you are to set aside this giving, this gift, this tithe, this offering, you're to set it aside, it is to be a regular practice. in addition addition to being regular, our giving ought to be planned. Paul tells them, set aside a sum of money. He doesn't say in that moment when it comes up, see what you have and, and give accordingly. No, he's telling them, set it aside. Plan ahead for this. Make this a practice that is not just something happening in the moment, but something that you are intentionally and fully behind in your practice. And thirdly, it should be regular, it should be planned, and it should be progressive. He says, as he may prosper in 1 Corinthians 16, it could also be translated according to his income. We ought to give according to what we make, according to what we are able to give. These are helpful. These are not laws that I'm giving you. But I think as I, as, as we frankly don't in the church talk all that much about giving, I think it would be a shame for us to declare some sort of self-righteous proclamation that giving must happen and then give no example of what true giving ought to be or what it ought to look like. In addition, I think the New Testament strongly supports this kind of giving over a spontaneous guilt-induced giving. Because here's the thing, as I'm up here preaching to you about giving, you might be feeling guilty. But if at the end of the day, after this sermon, all I've done is caused you to put money in the box before you leave or or to go ahead and pull up your app and give because you feel bad about your giving and that's it, then frankly, I haven't done a very good job of explaining what giving ought to be or what it ought to look like. My hope is not to hear guilt you in to giving to the church. That's not my hope. My hope is that you would see that a part of what it means to be a believer is to dedicate all that we are, be active in all that we are, be intentional in all that we have and all that we do as believers for the sake of Christ and for the sake of this church. Kind of, This is the kind of giving that marked the church here in Acts, and it served its part in the advancement of the kingdom of God. The pattern that we see in the early chapters of Acts is that the gospel is boldly proclaimed, which in turn, turn leads to a deeper and more sacrificial fellowship. Which in turn leads to bold proclamation of the gospel. It's a beautiful cycle that we see throughout the early chapters here in the book of Acts, and one that I think we ought to seek to imitate. A practical understanding we gain from this is that we're to be effective in both our outreach and our inreach. That we are to be effective in proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as I said before, we also are to be effective in care and support and communion with one another in all that we say, all that we have, and all that we do. And if either one of these is lacking, then our church is lacking. Neither is to be prioritized to the exemption of the other. In fact, they work together and work with one another. Having all things in common, being of one heart and soul, is essential for the spread of the gospel. And it's essential for at least two reasons. One, When we live in this way, when we seek to imitate the church like this, we have a safe harbor to find rest and comfort from the waves and from the rough waters that we face out in the world. We all know that living as a Christian, living as one who is called to live out the gospel, proclaim the gospel in a world that is seriously hostile to the gospel, can be exhausting. It can be tiresome. It can be weighty. And the kind of communion, the fellowship, the communion of saints that we see here serves for us as a safe harbor from the world. A place where we can come and we can encourage one another. Where we can love on one another. Where we can care for one another. With all that we have. That we can commit ourselves, commit our lives to loving one another. We all need this. We need it desperately. And we know that we need it. Therefore, we ought to realize and recognize that we need to give it to those around us as well. And the second reason that this is essential for the spread of the gospel is that when the world sees the love and care that we have for one another, they see a picture of the gospel and evidence that it's true. Jesus himself says this in the book of John. He says that you are to love one another in such a way that the world can look at you and know that you are my disciples. By this, the world will know. That you love one another. That's how the world's gonna know that we are committed to Christ, how we love one another. Are we loving one another in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that is radical? If not, then can the world really conclude that we radically are committed to Christ? According to Jesus Christ and the Gospel of John, the answer is no. If the world sees us saying that we're radically committed to Christ, but sees no commitment to God's people, no fellowship that looks anything like the early church, where we are committed to one another, where we're sacrificing for one another, then the world has a right to conclude that we do not belong to Christ. Let that never be said of us. Let the world never be able to look at us and our commitment to one another or lack thereof and conclude that we perhaps do not truly belong to Christ or that perhaps the gospel is not as great as what we say it is. If we want to foster this kind of radical unity, the communion of saints, then again, I would refer us back to what we said at the beginning of the sermon. Point number one, that we are to keep the source of our unity at the forefront of our heart, at the forefront of our mind. When we consider these difficult principles in living out the gospel, these difficult principles and even committing of our tithes and our offerings, of our finances, of all that we have to the Lord, it can seem really daunting. And oftentimes it seems so daunting because we are set our focus and our minds solely on those things. But what I would encourage you to do is that although we are called to give in a radical way, to be committed to one another in a radical way, it only is going to work if we keep the main thing, the main thing, if we centralize our focus, our hearts, our lives and our communion with one another around the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's only there that we find the grace that we need that's going to oil this machine that's going to make it work. It's only there that we're going to find a kind of unity that extends beyond our own interests and comforts. It's only in the person and work of Jesus Christ that any of this makes sense. Let us set our hearts and our minds and our focus on Him and follow and serve in that way out of that, not out of anything else. Let's pray.